Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, worship team. Let's give a hand clap to our worship team. They do such a phenomenal job week in and week out leading us into God's presence. And before we go into God's word this morning, I just want to give a shout out to our children's ministry. Lara Wadham and her team um, this past, this Sunday, has created and uh, through, the, through the work of the parents and all the kids, care packages, Valentine's cards, and gift, gift cards to 50 foster children in our community through the work of four kids. So great job, children. Great job, children's team. Well, let's turn our hearts to the preaching of God's word. As Jimmy mentioned, we are in week two of our sermon series entitled Real Love. And We've seen and want to continue to kind of wrestle with and, and as we kind of go into God's word, realize that real love is shown by both protecting and providing for the most vulnerable in our community. Last week, as we gathered around Exodus chapter 1, we saw that we're called to protect and provide for the most vulnerable, meaning children in the womb. And we're going to continue that theme as we go into chapter 2 in Exodus 2 that also includes children in distress, as we would call today children in the foster system. You see, I believe this, I deeply believe this, that the church of Jesus Christ is at its best when we are looking out for the most vulnerable. This is what James chapter 1 verse 27 tells us. There James writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. So before we keep reading, if James is saying that, that religion is, that is pure and undefiled, and then he starts to define it, that means, before we go on, that there could be a circumstance, a, circumstance, a, a time or an occasion where religion becomes defiled. And becomes impure. And God is at work in us, imperfect people, to conform us to the image of Christ. Because we des our desire here at Spanish River is not to be impure, but pure. Not to be defiled, but undefiled. Now, what does James say what we need to be up to to safeguard us from that? Well, he says this very simply. To look after, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep ourselves, oneself, unstained from the world. Now we know as we look at society, there's evil to be found everywhere. And James is telling us, if we want to be pure and undefiled, we have to do a lot more than avoiding evil. But we are called to give ourselves, our whole selves, to the cause of good. Expressed clearly by visiting the vulnerable. Now what does he mean by vulnerable? The word there literally means to look out for. To care for. Not just know that they exist. But to do something about the distress in which they find, ourselves, they, they find themselves. You see, when we look after the most vulnerable, we are closest to the heartbeat of God. It is many times as we take our time, our resource, and our energy ministering to those in distress that we meet Jesus, even sometimes for the first time. 
because we would be about his work, fulfilling his purposes, loving people the way that he has loved us and in so doing align ourselves with the purpose that he has created us for. As we wrestle with this uh, idea a little further, let's look at a quote from James Spurgeon. He was a 19th century British preacher. He writes, I think you may judge of a man's, a man's character by the people whose affection he seeks. If you find a man seeking only the affection of those who are great, depend upon it. He is ambitious and self-seeking. But when you observe that a man seeks the affection of those who can do nothing for him, but for whom he must do everything, you know that he is not seeking himself, but that pure benevolence sways his heart. So before we go into the narrative, chapter 2 of Exodus, I have a question for you to wrestle with internally. Whose affection are you primarily seeking? The powerful, the influential of our society, or the lowly, and vulnerable. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you open up to chapter 2 of Exodus. And we're going to pick up the narrative, the birth narrative now of Moses. Last week we saw the events leading up to Moses' birth. And now we're going to bring in this part 2 of this series of, of sermons on this topic of real love. The actual birth narrative of Moses. We're going to be reading verse, uh, chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Hear now the word of the living God. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him there for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with human and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman to, to uh, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the child was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call for you an, a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I give you, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew, grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. The reading of the word of the living God. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on us as we embark on this beautiful story of redemption. 
Lord Jesus, would you send your Holy Spirit in this place to flood our hearts with your love and mercy? Holy Spirit, would you silence those things that would distract us from hearing your word spoken to us this day? And we ask that you, by your strength and by the clarity of the word preached, that you would grant us one request. Not that we would master your word, but that your word would master us. For we offer this prayer in Jesus' matchless name. And God's people say, Amen. The story of Exodus is a story of redemption. It's a story of a family becoming a people, then a people becoming a nation. The story of Exodus is a story of hope, of, of renewal, of God's mercy bringing about freedom to his people who are under bondage, under the wicked hand of Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. Now, as we look at that story, we can seek, and I'm going to try to do this as we see this narrative, but I want to kind of tell you what I'm doing up front, is that what I want you to do is start to interpret your life, your story, in light of the themes that you're going to see prevented here, presented here. You're going to see God bringing hope and redemption and renewal, not by removing oppression from his people, but by walking them through oppression and providing for them strength for every day that they found themselves under the wicked hand of Pharaoh. Now, if you're like me, you can look back at your life. You can look back at the hard times. And you can look back, as I said last week, you can look back and say, I have no idea how I got out of that. There's no earthly reason why I should be here today. If what I was walking into really played out, my life would look totally different. And for that, I'm thankful. You see, in that moment, you're recognizing God's hand, his hand of providence that is upon you. That God, being the good shepherd, is guiding you to greener pasture. But sometimes we have to go through the valley. And that is what God is bringing his people through through the valley of the shadow of death, so that they can reside in greener pasture. And this is where we find God's people. Under the oppressive hand of Pharaoh and under his threefold plan of attack upon Israel. As you saw last week, as the book of Genesis ends, we see Joseph leaving, uh, leading his brothers into the land of Egypt to protect his family, his small tribe of about 70 people from the famine that was coming. And so God prepared a way for his people. But now they reside in Egypt. And many years have passed. So much so that the passage says that the new Pharaoh forgot all about Joseph. And forgot about how God used him mightily, not only to save his people, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, but also the Egyptian people. And so he didn't view the Jewish people as a blessing. He viewed them as a curse. And so the first stage of his a plan of, of assault was to enslave them and to give the Hebrew people heavy labor. But you know how God functions, right? The more the enemy oppresses you, 
the more as you walk with God, he blesses you. And so the more that uh, Pharaoh, the more work he gave him, the more they multiplied and frustrated Pharaoh. So he went to phase two of his attack. And he told the midwives of Israel to kill every male child born from any Jewish woman on the spot at the moment of her birth. But as you saw last week, the two midwives of Israel refused that request, even if it meant, that, meant their life because they valued the life that God was giving his people. And so Pharaoh now, as we see, goes through his final stage of attack. And he says to every Egyptian, he recruits every Egyptian. If they come across a Hebrew family with a male infant child, they were to do one thing, one hideous thing. Take that baby, walk it over to the Nile River, and throw it so that it would drown. Mass infanticide. But God raises up five women who defied Pharaoh's wicked edicts. We saw the first two last week. We're going to see three more today. We're going to see Jochebed. We're going to see Miriam. We're going to see Pharaoh's own daughter. And they're going to teach us this morning that real love both protects and provides. First, let's look how real love protects. As we look at verse 2, you see Jochebed, a, a mother of two older children, now being pregnant with a son. The son is born. The son is a male under death sentence from Pharaoh. But she decides to hide the child. Now, verse 2 tells us why. It tells us because she saw the child... And saw that he was a fine child. Now, we need to wrestle with that a little bit. Doesn't every mother think their child is fine? Beautiful, handsome, pretty? But really, is that the only reason that she protected him? If we just read it on, that, on a surface level like that, and the answer is, well, imagine a mother saying uh, to, to her baby Moses, Moses, good thing you're cute. Because if not, I'm not going to sacrifice myself for you. So it has to be made way more than that. And it is. It's profounding more in, in depth. Why? How, how can we dig deeper in this? See, Moses is writing this narrative. He's writing in, in Exodus his birth narrative, his autobiography for us. And Moses is also the author of Genesis. And remember we saw last week the first word of Exodus. Do you remember what it is? It's the word and. The very first word. And so that tells us that this Exodus is part two of this story of creation and redemption. But fall in the middle of those two things that Moses was writing in Genesis. And so when Moses writes of his mother seeing him as an infant and say, seeing him and saying he is good, what does that remind you of, of the first two chapters of Genesis? Well, Moses is borrowing, borrowing creation language from those chapters. God, in creating all things, looked every day on the work that he accomplished on that day and said, it is what? Good. The very same Hebrew word that, his, that comes out of his mother's mouth. She sees the work of her womb and she pronounces the words of God at creation saying, he is good. 
You see, every child has dignity and worth. Because God imprints upon us his image. And so she is echoing the words of her creator, saying, just like any mother, seeing her, first, her child for the first time says, there's hope in my baby's eyes. Because children are our hope. They are our future. They're a reminder that God has not given up on us. Imagine if a day came, no more babies were born to the human race. What would happen to us as a society? Hopelessness, despair. But God is pronouncing at the birth of every child that this is good. That every child has purpose, meaning, and potential for phenomenal blessings for this world. Now, sure enough, I don't know if Jochebed held her baby in her arms and said, this boy is going to become a man that God would raise up to defy Pharaoh. She probably didn't know that. But one thing she said that day was, I'm going to give my life protecting him. And that's what she does. The, the narrative says that she fashions a basket to protect her baby. Now, being a resourceful mother, she probably had this thought. Pharaoh told me I need to put, place my male child in the river. He never said I couldn't put him in a basket first. Sounds like a mother. But I need you to see that this basket that was formed is way better than a basket you can buy in Kirkland's, per se. Now, this, the, the original language is so helpful for us. To be honest, I'm going to confess a little bit. I never saw this until I studied for this sermon, and it just blew my mind away. I've heard this story since I was a child, but never saw the reality and the power in what Jochebed was doing. You know where we get that word, bas the word that's translated from Hebrew to basket? There's, that word is only used one more time in the Bible. And where is it? Well, let's go back to Genesis. Chapter 6 through 9, God delivers his people through the family of Noah by the call of Noah and his children to build what? An ark. To protect them from the judgment of water, which is death. That word is the exact same Hebrew word of what Jochebed was building. So she, was, she wasn't building a basket for Kirkland's. She was forming by her own hands an ark to protect her child from the judgment of Pharaoh. Wow! This basket is not her abandoning her child to chance, but her entrusting her child to God. Do you see that? Parents, we need to learn this lesson well. We are limited in our understanding, our abilities, our influence over our ch children. And it comes to a point that we need to say as they develop, Lord, I trust you with them. I can only helicopter over them for so long. There's going to be places they go that I don't want them to go, but they find themselves in. They're going to be people they, they acquaint with that are not the most saviest, uh, most savior of characters. That can, lead them in, that can lead them far from God. Parents, at a certain point, you need to step out in faith and say, Lord, these are your kids. You've only given them to me for a while. But during our time of influence that Jochebed had over Moses, she lived by faith. And that was the mark, the clear mark of her parenting. 
He said, whatever this baby is, Lord, he's yours. Protect him. And that is what she's doing as she places him in the ark and places him on the riverbanks by the reeds. She trusted God with her son. And notice what happens next. After the baby is placed in the Nile on the riverbank, we see little Miriam come. Miriam is Moses' big sister. Now we can infer here, we don't do a lot of inferences when we come and studying the Bible because we need to understand what it says clearly. But I think we're safe to infer where on earth did Miriam get the idea to watch after her little brother? I, I say we can infer that her mother told her to. It sounds very natural, right? Make sure you look after your little brother. Hold his hand. Yeah, and it, it annoys the bigger siblings, right? Mom, am I my brother's keeper? Well, the, the Bible has a verse for that. The answer is yes, you are. And so Miriam, as we infer, looks after her little brother. She's intently, like a hawk, protecting her little brother from afar. And then she sees the princess come and through her handmaidens, pick up the basket, the ark, out of the water, remove the lid, and see the baby. And as soon as that moment comes, what does Miriam do? She rushes into the, pres the presence of the princess. Something slaves don't do. But Miriam was bold. She was concerned for her brother. She shared the instinct that God gave her to protect this little child, and so she was brave. She approaches Pharaoh's daughter as she picks up her little brother, and, and Miriam says, as she finds herself awkwardly in the presence of royalty, she said, I see you have a Hebrew baby on your hands. Um, can I help you with that? I know a, a great nurse that can provide for this child. See, Miriam was advocating for her little brother. And in so doing, protecting and providing for him. Finally, the fifth woman we see is Pharaoh's daughter. And as she picks up the child, you have to understand the internal battle that she was facing. What would it mean for her to take and welcome this child into her family? It would take defying her father. It would take her facing her mother. If she takes this poor, vulnerable child in, she would have to deal with the great inconvenience of, that is raising a child, let's be honest. Right? You, you give your life for that child. So she's processing all of this in a millisecond because women have a, the power of doing that. Guys, we can't, right? But women can think all these thoughts in an instant. And because God made their minds as powerful as that. I can't fathom it. But she's thinking of all these things. And notice what her response, her response to Miriam was. Go. She made a decision to provide her resources. The resources of the kingdom for a Hebrew boy. Why? Because she knew that real love provides for the vulnerable. She understood it. She recognized it. 
So she accepts Miriam's proposal and not only that, employs Jochebed to pay for the raising of this son. Who would have thunk it? Who could write a story like this? Who is making a way through the valley? Who is who is creating a clear path to the valley of the shadow of death to greener pasture? Who could it be but the good shepherd? And this is what God is at work doing. But do you see the divine irony that is dripping all over the story? Ironically, this child, once doomed to death by Pharaoh's decree, will become the very instrument of Pharaoh's demise. And the means through which all of Israel escapes not only Pharaoh's decree, but Egypt itself. Do you know what Pharaoh ended up? Do you know what his demise was? What was it? How did Pharaoh die at the end of the story? I mean, we have to fast forward, right? About 40 or, or no, like 80 years. But how does Pharaoh meet his demise? By drowning. God took the weak, wicked edict that Pharaoh pronounced upon God's people and then inflicted it upon him. God is writing a story that no one could imagine. But God is at work, to put it in another day, Pharaoh first brings death, then life to Moses. My, Moses gets raised on Pharaoh's dime. So funny. And as we see often in Scripture, the Lord shows his strength by meeting his people precisely in the depths of their despair and working through those circumstances for ultimate good and ultimate glory. This is Moses' story. And what is he telling us today? This is your story. This is a story that God is writing in your life and you come closest to it when you offer your life so that other people, the most vulnerable in fact, can be protected and, pro and be provided for by your care. God raised up these five women who stepped up to show real love by protecting and providing for them. The midwife said, their testimony is this, the midwife's testimony is, we will choose life. Jochebed's story, she testifies to us this morning saying, I will protect. Little Miriam says, I will advocate. And the princess, Pharaoh's daughter says, I will provide my resources. You see, this has been the testimony of God's people this marks God's people, not only in the scriptures, but also starting from the first century. First century Christians would gather and would go and form search parties, walking down roads, designated places, and even forests. Because the culture of that day said, if you have a child, especially a child who's disabled or even unwanted, you can just have the baby, walk it down to a road, a designated area, or just even drop it in a forest and walk away. That was the culture of the first century. But Christians marched, they went out, they sought after these child, brought them into their home, and welcomed them into their family. This is what Jesus' followers do. We protect and we provide for the most vulnerable. Now why? Why do we, all, why do, we do all this? Because we know the secret of life. We, we've come to realize and been transformed by a simple, profound truth that to live happy is to be given sacrificial love. 
And to die happy is to give it. That is when you're most alive. When you realize that someone gave it all for you. They put their lives on the line for you. And as a result of that profound expression of love, you want to do the same for people around you. This is how we defeat a culture of death. Because we believe a more beautiful, a more excellent story. We believe the story of God that says we are created in his image, that we are valuable, that we are his sons, that we are his daughters. And then we echo that story in what we say and how we live and how we use our money, how we spend our time. It's a testimony to this great narrative. And the work continues to this day. And that's why I'm so excited to team up this morning with four kids. Four Kids is an organization that since 1997 has been finding homes for every child in our community. They're living this out. But do you know that in our county, Palm Beach County, 50 children are en enter into the foster system every month? In our county, Palm Beach County, in our cities, in our homes, these children, these vulnerable ones, are abandoned neglected and abused. So the question I have for you this morning is, what are you going to do about it? Pharaoh could have let the basket go by. She could have lived in the lap of luxury and live a happy life that this world offers. But she chose something more beautiful. But even though as we hear that stat, and it breaks, breaks our hearts. You want to know something? This real problem is solvable. If 50 evangelical churches in our county foster just one child each, there will be no more children in the foster system. Let that sit with you for a moment. I'm not talking about everyone here in this room. I'm not saying only the big churches. I'm saying just at one church fostering one child, that means every kid is protected and provided for. This problem is solvable. But it comes when we make a decision. Are we going to be people that, are, that our lives are shaped by this beautiful story of redemption? I want to share a story with you. It's John and Donna's story. They're members of our church. And they stood up to protect and provide for a vulnerable foster baby in need. Let's hear their story. My name is John Brown. This is my wife, Donna. We've been married for 35 years. What happened when we first saw the four kids uh, in the bulletin, they were running for like two or three weeks, I believe. And the first week, I didn't think anything of it, and I dismissed it. The second week, it uh, said, you know, God might be trying to talk to you, John, pay attention. And the third week, I'm like, this is just getting crazy. So I, I saved the bulletin, I put it in my back pocket, and we got home and life got in the way and I lost the bulletin. Uh, I didn't find my bulletin, I found Donna's bulletin and I never go in her purse. Her purse was open and the bulletin was laying there uh, to that page. Here's open. the interesting thing too, we never get two bulletins. We usually just get one between the two of us. So this particular weekend, we had two bulletins. One got lost, and he found the other one. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went in the room, I saw this bulletin, and I'm like, okay, God, 
I'm going to find out right now. So I picked her bulletin up, came into our living room, sat down and made the call. And once I hung up the phone, I realized I hadn't talked to Donna at all about it. And I was a little concerned at what I had volunteered us for. So I didn't walk in the other room. I called her. He's being my... really nice. I was in the bathroom. Some people you can't protect. I was in the bathroom and he calls me and he says, don't kill me, but I just signed us up for foster classes. Now, it's not the first time he'd ever said anything to me. We discussed it in the past, but... I didn't say don't kill me. I said, I want to ask you how you feel about this because I want to know if I need to start running or if I can just hang out here and wait for you to come. That's right. So. And I said, uh, I said, well, I said, how about we discuss it after I come out of the bathroom? So uh, we started the um, lessons at the end of January. The, at the end of the first class, we walked out to the parking lot and I opened Donna's car door. And before she sat down, I said, honey, give me your hand. And we prayed right by the car. Lord, we're going to be getting a child that is in trouble right now. Uh, please put your hand on that child. So the, the interesting timeline is that we said that in January we prayed for the child. Turns out our son was born February 3rd. Mm -hmm. you know, so a few days before he was actually born, we were praying for him. Yeah. And that's God's grace in our life. The first day that we saw Jackson, uh, ChildNet gave us a call. They are the ones who were that actually take children into custody, into foster care. And they said, we have a placement, but um, we just want you to please just keep him overnight. It's a seven-month-old boy. They asked us, we can drop him off, but we don't know what time of night he'll get to you. Or you can come and pick him up. We're on our way. We're on our way. So we just threw clothes back on. We were sitting you know, in jammies watching TV. So we threw our clothes back on 9 o'clock at night, picked him up at ChildNet, and he was... He had lived in a car seat basically the first seven months of his life. His parents were very much involved in drugs and they had multiple challenges and he was neglected. He also had spider bites. He had seven different spider bites all over his body. Um, we could identify it by the look of the bite. Uh, when we first got Jackson, he was uh, attention starved. One of his caregivers told us he never cries. And children cry. They just don't cry when they don't get attention. Uh, he would uh, be starved for attention, and now he's not. He's a 360-degree kid. He's got his good moods and his bad moods. and He's a normal kid. Kind of everywhere in between, which is wonderful. It, it, it became pretty apparent within the first couple months that this child was not going to be able to be reunified with his parents. They just weren't doing what they needed to do to get him back. So then the goal changed to a combination of, of uh, reunification and adoption. And they started talking to us about adoption. You know, we're older people, so we have three grown kids, and we were like, well, what happens, heaven forbid, if something happened to both of us and we're raising this child? So we actually brought our children into that conversation and said, you know, if we adopt him, he's ours. And they literally said to us, we'd be standing in line for him. He's part of our family already, and he will be well taken care of if, God forbid, anything happens to you and, and Dad. As much as you try to do something for God, he's able to 
say, no, 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 this is a blessing for you. And we have gotten so much out of being there for Jackson. Uh, He's not allowing us to feel old because I'm chasing a three-year-old. There's no time to think about, you know, growing old. Yeah, and and even if you just foster and maybe even are led to adopt one, I'd like to say you, um, you might not change the world, but you've changed the world for that child. What an encouraging story. What a beautiful story. Pharaoh's daughter named the little baby she picked up out of the water Moses because his name in the language means the one rescued or drawn out of the water. He carried that name with him the rest of his life because God would raise him up to draw other people through the water. See, the Bible says that God has come to rescue us just as he sent that princess to rescue Moses. The Bible says that we were drowning in the waters of sin and despair. Things that bring us far from the heart of God. Living in rebellion from his word. We've experienced the outcome of rebellion. It's bitterness. It's death. Death of relationships. Death of our spirit. Death of our relationship with God and leaves us hopeless. Many of us think... God then just wants us to live good lives to make up for the bad things that we do, thinking that we can make ourselves good enough. But the message of the Bible is that our good enough, our good works just don't work. Because God is perfection and requires perfection from his creation. He requires that goodness to be lived out, not just believed, but lived out. And all of us are short of that. Now, one person here is perfect. The Bible says that we're sinners. But we're more than sinners. We're created to be more than sinners. We're created to be the children of God. And so God showed his love for us. While we were yet sinners, he sent his son, Jesus, to die for the ungodly. And it was on that cross that the Father took our sin, our rebellion, and our shame and placed it upon Jesus' shoulders. And Jesus paid the penalty of our sin, which is death. And then after three days, the word says he resurrected from the grave. To give us hope for new life, forgiveness, mercy. And what he calls us to do is to trust him. And by faith, as we do that, he gives us his perfect record. He gives us his goodness and makes us good. So me seeking good in my life is really an outpouring of the goodness of God that has been given to me by faith in Jesus. This is what grace is. And this is what God is offering to you this morning. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, then he's calling out to you. Come home. He's calling, as the Apostle Paul says, as an offer of adoption into the family of God. So if that is you this morning, if you feel God working in your heart, don't turn your ears away. Don't turn your eyes away but fix your eyes upon Jesus because it is in him that you can find hope for this life and not only this one, but the life to come. If you made a decision this morning to follow Jesus, please let us know. 
I'm going to ask you to take your first step, and that is to take out your phone and text the name Jesus to 474747. We're going to send you a link to a website. We'll give you some resources free, and we want to come alongside of you as, we, as you start your new life in Jesus. But as we pray, would you stand, stand with me? And let us pray, Lord Jesus, you have shown us so much this morning. You have done a mar marvelous work in our souls. Jesus, we trust in you knowing that you have forgiven us of our sin and that you have given us your goodness. And now we stand as adopted sons and daughters. Lord, we come as a people in whose life you're building a beautiful city. And Jesus, we can't wait for the day of your return. And for now, we wait, we trust, we protect, and we provide because that is what you're calling us to do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.